take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Thanks for coming in, man. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, um, you came to me, Fahad. Sorry, we'll we'll introduce you right off the right off the bat. Unicorn Labs is is your your passion, your life, your business. <laughs> um, you came from our good friend Reagan. Uh, you guys work together, eh? Yeah, yeah, we did some great work together. Reagan's a phenomenal, phenomenal marketer and brand strategist. Yeah, we had a ton of feedback. So a lot of the people I I work with, uh, at least in like a, a podcaster um, kind of not profession but capacity, a lot of people get into podcasting. Like I talk on the mic and stuff, and it's all good. And then you get into that whole, and we were talking about this off mic, like that whole the branding on social media aspect of it. And everyone is like, if you're not in it, you really have no clue how to do it. <laughs> yeah. And we were just laughing before, laughing how we, we hate both, like don't like taking videos and self- selfies of ourselves. We'd rather just like kind of, I don't know if you're like me, like just meeting people and talking to them one-on-one. And yeah. that's kind of what you, what you like to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I think in person through and through, I think what we were saying earlier, I was like, you know, with my, with my work at Unicorn Labs as a professional speaker, I'm so comfortable being on stage and doing the show and making the laughs and telling the story and giving the impact and all of that stuff. I, I love it. I'm so good at it. But then put me behind a camera and I'm trying to try to do a 30 second Instagram story and I just feel so awkward. Yeah. <laughs> I try to get over it. And, and, and I guess that's where Reagan came into play. She, she's been uh, phenomenal in helping me kind of elevate my marketing and social media game. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all these podcasters uh, were, were messaging me being like, Oh, dropping so much knowledge! Like now, like I see some of them like taking videos and stuff. I just I have a little laugh to myself, <laughs> just how powerful some people on podcasts can be, and yeah. and the things you can take from it, which is what I love about the platform. Unicorn Labs, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that, because uh, I mean, off the top, I'm like unicorns. Mm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we got rainbows. Yeah. We got unicorns. <laughs> I'm, you know, I always say the best way to really understand what we do at Unicorn Labs is, is for me to tell you like a quick little story. Cool if I do that? Mm-hmm. So I think the best way to, to see it is I, I, I work with amazing entrepreneurs who have built out a product or they've built out a service. They've built out something that they're really passionate about, but they built it out either on their own or with a really small team of three or four people. And then they go and, and they want to raise a round of funding because they want to get funding now. They want to get investor money to grow it to the size that they want it. Or they've had enough sales that now they're growing their team. And, and, and in a quick instant, in almost a year, most of them double or triple the size of their team. So they go from three or four people to about 12, 13, 14, 15. And then they realize, oh, shit, I don't really know how to manage this team. I was a phenomenal entrepreneur. I'm a, a phenomenal, I'm a phenomenal coder, and I built this product. I'm a phenomenal marketer, and been able to create the funnels that we need to get the business. But I've never really had to manage a team. I've never really had to manage people, and people are the difficult part. Mm, <laughs> people are telling the, me. Oh. <laughs> people have their personalities and their quirks and their different ways of going. And and so what we do is we work with entrepreneurs on how to develop their leadership capacity. But not just with the entrepreneurs themselves. We actually work with their managers because what we've seen with a lot of research is that. One of the single most biggest biggest factors in growth of mid-sized companies, small-sized companies, and especially startups, is the quality of 
leadership skills in their managers. And and when we talk about leadership skills, we're going to get into it, I'm sure, but we mm-hmm. talk about really emotional intelligence and the adaptability quotient, your ability, especially in a startup, to adapt very quickly to, 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 to what's new. And emotional intelligence is something that we all know more of. So that's where we work with teams. So Unicorn Labs, we work with these entrepreneurs, we work with these companies. So we're working with about 10 or 12 different startups here in the city, uh, in, in Ottawa. And we work with them regularly, either a monthly basis or a yearly basis on training their teams and training their staff on developing those leadership capacities. Right. Because it, it, it's interesting you say that about entrepreneurs. When you, you think about the traditional one, right? It's someone who had this idea. Uh, they, they were able to implement it. Uh, and, you, you know, I've been really into Shark Tank lately. Yeah. I know I said this. <laughs> so I'm all like, yeah, I know all about business and entrepreneurs. And you go on Shark Tank and you're trying to raise money. No, but, you know, it, it's people who don't necessarily have those skills who have come up through the ranks and and got that training to be mm-hmm. a leader. So I find that interesting that you know you yourself as an entrepreneur like found this this space yes. that you were kind of like I don't know what did you see there was like a was there like a a moment where you're like aha there's a there's a, a hole here or did, like you know what like yeah. that bad manager story honestly, or anything great, or? honestly great question that's that's that's, that's you know I, I would say I think a lot of times these aha moments are complete completely fall into the narrative dilemma right mm-hmm. I, I think uh, uh, it's, it's outlined in in in, uh, in Dalib's book the black Swan the black Swan he talks about the narrative dilemma where we want to put it into a story but I think for me it wasn't so much me identifying aha moment so I worked in the startup world I had my own startup be- kind of technological startup before this business it was called uh, Frank Technologies Frank is a phone we we're building a mobile technolo- technology a mobile phone essentially to compete uh, in North American markets but really in a low cheap cheap market anyway so building mm. this out I really got involved in the entrepreneurship community here and made a ton of friends different startups and so on and so forth and at the same time I was doing all this work on leadership development in high schools and universities and developing a high school curriculum on how do we include soft skill development for students in high schools because I was very much involved in that and very much involved in, in, in that leadership capacity when I was a high school student, when I was a university student. So I was doing this leadership development stuff in universities and high schools, running my startup. When my startup failed about a year and a half in, unfortunately, and we can get into that story, um, I was kind of looking at different gigs and looking at different things. And one of my buddies who's running his startup said, came to me and said, Fad, I'm having trouble with my managers. Like I never realized as a CEO of a team of 20 now that the biggest thing I'd be dealing with is conflict management, my staff. He's like, I, I want to be focused on the product. I want to be focused on the innovation, the marketing stuff I love, but I'm dealing with people problems every single day. He's like, like, I know you do this leadership stuff. Can you help us? And that was one of those moments where you're like, I mean, I think I can. Because mm-hmm. like, well, I've done it for like university students and your staff aren't that much older. They're 23, 24, 25. They're young millennials who are entering the workforce, finishing university and trying to figure themselves out. And so I kind of said, you know what? Uh, let's try it. Like I, I have some good materials. I've developed some good stuff for universities. Um, I can try and run some workshops with you. And, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of just started off by doing a workshop and it kind of grew from there. We did one, we did a second one, we hosted a retreat for them where we brought their team together. And then that kind of spread one referral after another from the different startups that were around. And they all came to me with the same problem, which I identified as kind of the little story that we use now, which is, you know, they come at a point where they've just grown. They've just grown to 20 people, 15 people. And the CEOs always complain, 
I didn't realize I had to deal with all these people problems. Mm -hmm. I, I thought building a company, I would have to deal with product problems or marketing problems. I say the majority of our problems in startups are people problems. But if we can solve for people problems, then we can then we can grow. And I think we use, the, you know, our name's Unicorn Lab. So where does this unicorn come from? Mm. I think a lot of these startups, we say, you know, they're trying to build a billion dollar company. They want to scale. They're thinking scale, growth, scale, growth. And I always tell them, you're trying to build a billion dollar company by focusing on your product and marketing. Let me build your unicorn people while you build your unicorn product. Because if you have phenomenal, talented leaders that know how to interact with each other well, then that will elevate your team to the success that it wants to be. And right. So, you know, that we, we kind of fell into it, got a bunch of referrals, and then realized, hey, people want us to do this. Mm. And there's a sweet little market and niche here. Okay, let's keep exploring this. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, really, that's really what we did. Yeah, I mean, Ottawa is a fantastic... I mean, I don't know, I guess, in the broad scale of the world, but, you know, with whether now yourself or Reagan or, or Mallory or meeting tons of people on social media all the time with the entrepreneurship community in Ottawa, yeah. it seems to be pretty vibrant in this in this city that there seems to be a lot of opportunity, a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Yeah. I guess with Shopify being like the ultimate kind of mm -hmm. pinnacle of what you could be. Yeah. Um, I, find it, I find it interesting. This problem, though, really isn't necessarily entrepreneurs only and exclusive. Uh, I've been saying for a long time that like like just businesses in, in general, corporations, mm -hmm. all these, these massive, mm -hmm. you know, all the time, everyone, just like you said, think it's the product, that that's the problem that we have to focus on. And like the people always get pushed aside those problems right you just rely on everything as like kind of i call it band-aid work yeah we're just kind of like <laughs> i'm just gonna slap this on and uh, okay it, it's holding and i'm gonna move on um you know especially me like someone who's in mental health mm -hmm. uh who's very involved with that space uh and an advocate for mental health at work you know managers aren't even like they're just promoted to managers don't even get trained yes in mental health right like they're just like hey now you're a manager here you go here's a bunch of people who report to you and good luck <laughs> um yeah you know what are some of these big problems when you're going into these companies what are you seeing what are these issues that you're identifying specifically and and trying to you know help this company overcome yeah definitely um you know so there's there's a few there's a few problems that we try and target and and we usually do we usually start off whenever working with a company. We usually do uh, an assessment period where we actually work with their managers. We do some surveys. We do some focus groups and try to identify some of the issues that they're currently facing versus just doing a bit of a cookie, cut, a cookie cutter training. We like to customize the majority mm -hmm. of our trainings and our consultations. And um, you know what we realize is, I think as you as you put it, a lot of managers in these startups, right? You're the best designer, right? So you're the first designer on the team, and you're phenomenal. And then they hire a second designer, then they hire a third designer, and you got this design team. And so then the CEO says, okay, well, I can't keep having all four of you report to me. I'm just gonna get them to report to you. You were you're the most senior in the team, um, and uh, you manage the team. And so suddenly you're in a management position, but you're like, I'm just a phenomenal designer. Yeah, uh, it's a totally I have to, different game. I have game. to manage people. So then it starts off like this, like. Okay, uh, what are you doing today? Oh, what are you doing today? Okay, okay, can you guys do this? You guys do that? So it starts off as a little project management. And so they see ma they see themselves as managers, as project managers. You're like, okay, I just got to manage what people do on their day-to-day, -day, and then I'll be good. And that's, that's where they end up. And so majority of managers think of their role very much um, as, as, as uh, managing resources, and these human resources and these budget resources. And I say... Our goal with Unicorn Labs is to transform managers into leaders 
that create unstoppable teams. So what is that shift from management to leadership? We say managers are really focused on managing the resources, but leaders are focused on creating change. Leaders are focused on actually propelling the projects forward. They're also focused on the personal development of each member in their team. So our biggest focus in, in shifting people to leaders instead of just managers, we talk to them about what it means to develop the people in their team. What it, we, talk, we call it the coach approach. Mm -hmm. You have to think of yourself as a coach where you have to sit on the bench when your players are playing the game. You can't play for them. You're not the captain of the team, you're the coach. And how do you coach your team? How do you coach your staff? How do you develop them in that process? So we kind of shift it and say, okay, we still, you still got to learn the management piece and we'll teach you basic project management. That's usually not the problem that you have. What you have is that you haven't learned to develop your people, so we're going to teach you some skills around how to be a better coach. And then three, we're going to teach you how to read people better from an emotional intelligence perspective. So what are your quirks? What's your personality type? How do you show up at work? And how is your personality type affecting the way you currently manage and lead? And that self-awareness leads us into, well, we do self-regulation. Okay, how do you now adapt your style to work with the people better, right? So manage them, coach them, adapt your way into actually working with them better. And then the last piece, and this is the part that the CEOs usually really push me on. They say, if I, how do I retain my talent? Because what we're seeing is that we're seeing this, this, this. We're in a booming economy right now. Mm. We are. It's 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 exciting. There's a ton of job opportunities, more than there has been in, in a very long time. Actually, I think the statistic in Canada was it was unemployment rates uh, lower than it has been since 1969. Like yeah, it's extremely yeah. low, which tells you that there's an abundance of job and 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 there's talent. And everyone wants talent, so. Talent is being, there's this talent war between the U.S. and Canada of where we're trying to pull people. Shopify is eating up all the amazing coders. If you're here in Ottawa and you're running a small startup, how do you compete against their big offices, their free lunches and yeah. other snacks? And Right, so Seriously. how do I retain talent? And so what I tell a lot of CEOs, if we develop phenomenal managers, you actually retain talent a lot more. Because if you are coaching your managers and you're developing their skill sets and you create an environment where people want to come to work because they're engaged, that's the missing piece. That's the piece that keeps them at your job versus saying, oh, I'll get a nice little salary bump somewhere else. Yeah. And so that's the real issues that CEOs really care about. How do I create retention? How do I create a culture? Our managers really care about how do I increase the team performance? What we're overall trying to work on is how do you create a team that's greater than the sum of its individuals? Right. Yeah. You know, I love that. There's people, not people, but there's that meme that I always see. People don't quit jobs. They quit bad managers. Mm, that's it. And it's, that's it. it's so true. You ever think about, I love this job, but I, I just can't work for so-and-so. You know, they, they're on me every day. They're, they're, they make me feel like, like shit. Yeah. Yeah, right. I love the job. I love my friend. Like I love my coworkers. But there's I love like, the compensation. I love yeah. everything is perfect. But yet one emotional relationship causes them to leave yeah. completely, and we lose that talent. And that's where that's where we, you know, that, it doesn't matter how good your product is. Doesn't matter how many perks you're giving them, if that emotional relationship isn't good. And that's where we work with the the, the teams and realize because as they start to realize, oh crap, <laughs> that's so important mm -hmm. that my managers have the proper training. Yeah. Beyond just project management, which is where most people when they think of managers, they think, "Oh, project management." We're talking about emotional beings, which we are. We all like to think we're rational beings, you know. Oh, I think rationally. No, we're fundamentally emotional beings, and the rational thought comes after.
Yeah. Right. And so we need to coach people on, on, on using that as a base. Yeah, absolutely. A bunch of stuff I want to take out of that. Let's... But first, my biggest question, like you're, you're a young guy. Yeah. Um, and one of the fascinating things that I, I always find about, you know, people my, around my age in general, but young entrepreneurs, right? You, you don't have the benefits necessarily that someone like I would, where I have a salary. So, you know, if I choose to mail it in one day, like, you know, like your success and your well-being really depends on you getting in there mm -hmm. and convincing, I mean, in some cases, convincing these CEOs as a young guy that you might know more about this subject than say they do. Or, mm -hmm. you know, to me, that seems like a challenge. I, I think back to my times as being like a young radio salesperson, just trying to convince somebody how to market their business and why they needed radio. And a lot of the time, like you're young, you don't know what you're saying. What is that challenge like for you? Cause that's something I'm always really fascinated about. And especially in this particular subject, like that's a really hard one, mm -hmm. you know, to lay in the hands of, someone you might see as you know not experienced yeah. I, I use air quotes definitely, definitely. you know I, I think that's definitely you know a thought that first comes to your head and I, I, I would and, and, and I know when starting to do this work I kind of said you know yeah would would someone would this 65 year old CEO trust me yeah and I said well fuck that I'm not working with the 65 year old CEO <laughs> who am I working with I'm working with the 30 year old entrepreneur who just built a company Right. I'm working with a 26-year-old entrepreneur who just built a company. The 32, 34, who actually recognize that a 55, 65-year-old leadership coach doesn't understand the nuances of a 21st century economy and growing up in a 21st century digital world and what that means for managing a team. Because what you're managing a team now is you're managing a remote team too. Mm -hmm. How do you create a sense of belonging and we talk about that in, in creating teams. But how do you how do you create a sense of belonging and create interaction, proper interaction, when the sixty year old manager who's coaching you has never had to use Slack and manage a team that lives halfway across the world? So what we provide as insight to a lot of these startups is uniquely nuanced to both startup life and to a twenty first century digital world in which managing talent has completely shifted on its head. Because when you look at it, we're we're talking about managing millennial talent. We're talking about managing Generation Z talent. And that looks different. And the reason it looks different is not because, you know, oh, millennials are spoiled or this or that, which is complete bullshit. We, we can get into that. Mm. But it, it's more on that we the way we use our digital tools, the way we look at human interaction, the way and what, what personal meaning aspects we look for, right? More than ever has a generation lived through a boom where they see abundance and opportunity, so they're not going to stick around if you're shitty. Mm -hmm. And no one's sticking around. I don't need you. I have other opportunities. So unless we're great, we then won't stick around. So I think our approach has given us a very much uh, uh, unique angle. Um, our thought, kind of leadership thought, has been very, very new, very fresh, with tenets of kind of foundational leadership and foundational mm -hmm. emotional intelligence. Um, but I think the other part is. I have experience in startups and that really kind of piques the interest with a lot of the startups I'm working right. with. It gives us that additional sense of authority, additional sense of experience. But you also relate to them on a level that like, yo, like I'm basically in your shoes with mm -hmm. you right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I 
totally understand all of this and yes. what you're going through. Yes. I understand, I understand what it means to try and hit payroll. Yeah. When you have four or five staff on payroll. I understand what it means to try and grow your company and not know what the next couple of days looks like. I understand what it means to try and raise money in my first company we were trying to raise money. I have, I have these understandings that perhaps a, you know, a consultant from Deloitte who has leadership management consulting certificates and degrees might not understand because they've spent their life in consulting. So there is mm -hmm. a there is a nuance difference, but I totally respect that also. I say, yeah, I, I, I'm young. I've got a, a new, fresh approach to things, and um, we're here to help build you a young company. And at the end of the day, we're working with managers who are their first time managing. I've been managing teams since I was the age of, I would say, about 14, 15. Um, you know, the same way that you probably have done kind of media, like in, in very different capacities. I've had a team since I was 14 when I was running, you know, uh, the, the high school, you know, intramurals or the, the stuff right, that I was right. doing in high school in regards to student council or the volunteer work we were doing for the Boys and Girls Club where we were raising money. By the age of 20, 21, I had raised about $1.3 million for charities wow. here in the city of Ottawa. And wow. so we had teams that were doing fundraising. We had teams that were doing marketing campaigns. I, I ran the student union at the age of 22, 23, where I had 150 staff and 15 direct reports with an $8 million budget. So my management experience, you know, maybe is not 30 years of management experience, but it comes at a different, uh, different perspective and very much has been there for the last 10 years. Right. Yeah. Couldn't say, couldn't have said it better myself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate it. But, you know? but I, I just, I always love that question because it, it's true. And, but I love that answer because like, you're right. It doesn't matter if you have that 30 years experience, cause like I truly believe and you hear it all that time. And I guess we'll get into that part now with the millennials and generation Z is like where we are not like our parents. We are not like our grandparents. And I always say like, we don't put up with shit mm -hmm. as a generation, as a whole, that if you're going to like yell at me and treat me badly and threaten me, like I'm gone. I don't need this. Yeah. Right. We're all young enough too, where, you know, we don't, a lot of us don't have families. We don't right. have, that burden like our parents mm -hmm. kind of have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the whole mind shift of what's, you know, equitable, what yes. what's just, mm -hmm. what is the correct way of doing things? That whole mind shift is, has changed mm -hmm. in the workplace. And I'm definitely finding that out as like a young leader slash manager that, you know, even in five years of doing it, the, the change within, especially the last, I would say three years, mm -hmm. It's it really has shifted from like, hey, I need you to do this this thing, and like it's not necessarily a no, but they like there's just a different attitude towards it. Yes, is that what you are also experiencing? Like, is this like a we get entitled? I get it. Like that's that's our rap. I don't think it is. I well, there's an element of it. I don't think it's all necessarily entitlement. Yeah, is that what you're seeing on like the the ground level when you're working with these yeah. people? Yeah, I think I think you know. What we're what we're what we're seeing, and I, I say this, we see, so I, like I said, I, I told you a lot of my leadership development stuff started in high schools. Yeah, I used to teach teachers. We we used to do workshops with them, and so what we used to say is, uh, you know, buddy here, Mike or whatever his name is, gets in trouble every single math class. You kick him out of math class every single time. You say that's sent to the principal office. But Mike has never missed a football practice. Shows up on time, shows up early, has never been kicked out of a football practice, and has had a wonderful time. It's the same person we're talking about. In one case, his behavior and his attitude towards his teammates is phenomenal. 
But the other one, he's the worst kid in the school. It's the same kid. Mm. What we're having him do is one is by choice and the other is forced. So what we come to understand with this, I think, generation, and you and I are here on a Tuesday at 7 p.m., mm-hmm. giving our own leisure time up to chase a passion. And so people say, well, millennials don't want to work hard. Say, well, no, actually, they'll, they'll go above and beyond. They just need to care about it. Mm-hmm. And I think far too often when we're managers, we, we rely on the lowest level of leadership, which is authority. It's the lowest. If you rely on authority, you will lose them. That's it. It's the lowest level. It's the lowest thread. We can't rely on authority. We have to see our staff as volunteers. If they're volunteers, then what, how would you get a volunteer to do something? You would entice them. You would engage them. You would get them excited about the idea or you would get them to engage in the idea and solving the problem. I think far too often we feel like we need to give people... We need to give the people the answer. We need to give our staff the answer for how to solve the problem. And a perfect example, I was just with one of my staff, right? Reagan, who works with us, right? And Reagan was like, well, I just need to figure out the process for putting out all the blog and everything before I hand it over to Mariah, who's doing some copywriting for us. And I said, well, why don't you just give her the problem? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, get her to figure it out. She'll actually enjoy it more figuring out the problem than you giving her the solution and her following steps that are easily laid out. Problem solving is actually what engages our creativity. Getting Mm. someone, getting them to try and figure out a problem that we don't have an answer to is fun because it's challenging. And so this is what we're missing for a lot of our millennials. Giving them actual problems that they can try and figure out instead of trying to, we're trying to make it easy for them because we think that, oh, if I make it easy for them, they'll do it. It's actually a little reverse. Give them a problem to figure out. Say, I I don't have a solution for how we need to increase sponsorship for our radio. Can you come up with a creative solution? And giving some of that freedom, giving them some of that, that, that time, that is what we're seeing as working more and more. And we're seeing that. I, mean, I had a client, government client, and we work mostly with startups, but we do end up working you know, with a few nonprofits, government mm-hmm. departments, so on and so forth. And they said, they're like, Fad, we're having a brain drain here. Uh, talented people keep leaving us. I said, well, yeah, because you're boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> y- y- you're not engaging the, uh, a certain... <clears throat> And, and there are certain government departments that are phenomenal. It's not all, you know, yeah. I'm not going to name this one specifically. But unless we set up a challenge, people will leave. We know that motivation comes from autonomy and mastery as two key elements and then independence. An ability to set their own priorities, an ability to master a skill or master a problem and unpack it, right? And use their creativity. Like those are, are, are key elements in engaging them. And I think that's that's some of the stuff that we're mm-hmm. missing from from some of our millennials. And then and then the, la- the last piece that you said, and I say, and they say this all the time, we talk about the importance of belonging. And I can go off for, you know, 20, 30 minutes on the importance of belonging. But creating an environment where the employees, the millennials, feel like this is a part of my life. We no longer see, and even then, even the language around work-life balance is no longer the case. It's work-life integration. Which, which talks about, well, no, my life is my work and my work is my life. Mm-hmm. There, I spend so much time of it. I don't want them to be separate. I want them to be one and the same. So I need to be passionate about it. I mm-hmm. need to care for it. And unless we can get them to be passionate about it by creating an environment where they're passionate, right? You spend more time at work than you do at home with your family. Like our loved ones, our people we love most in the world, we spend less time than our coworkers with. with. And so unless we love our coworkers, and I mean love, like like the way we have a family where we joke with them and have fun and, and feel a deep sense of trust, then we don't want to show up every day. 
then we leave, we come in right at nine, we leave right at five. We take our full hour lunch break. We take our 15 minutes. Why? Because I don't want to be in that space. I'm not comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's way more important than any salary you're giving, than any job title that they have or anything that they're doing. Do I feel comfortable and do I feel like I belong to this team? Mm-hmm. That work-life integration, I'm interested. Do you think that's like a, a sustainable, healthy way of operating our ourselves as like a as a culture as a society right where they are one in the same and they aren't separate you know that that that's a pretty big like paradigm shift to to what mm-hmm. we've grown up with and like you said that whole talk of work life balance and you know you need to be healthy to get away and like to to have it as one in the same like what is that do you, is that a healthy way of living do you think you know what is there no, science no, behind so that I don't, so I don't think I'm uh, and I don't think I'm uh you know, arguing against any work-life balance. Yeah. I definitely think time time for rest, time for... I love going to the gym, time for family and friends. I'm all for it. Like, 100% in the traditional notion of balance, have that, that piece of your life. I just mean, people don't walk away from their work anymore. And people don't want to walk away from their work. They want it to be a part of their life. And they want to be engaged in it at a, at a deeper level where they're spending some time in the evening working on it because they like to. Mm-hmm. And not because they feel like they have to. Right, but they are working on some 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 weekends because they love it or they're excited or they're excited about the potential growth of it and what they're doing. Um, I'm all for like I, I you know I think uh, uh, my the majority of people on my team all have another side hustle, and I personally encourage the side hustle and say like 100% go for it. And you know a lot of people will say oh yeah go Google and so on and so forth. They'll give their employees 10 20% time to work on their own projects. I mean, you know why I enjoy that even? I, I, I say work on a side hustle, please do, because I think it's phenomenal. It's because they learn more during their side hustle than they do in their own job. Mm-hmm. Because they're trying new things when in their job they're doing some things a little more repetitive, right? So when I'm, we're looking at this balance, 100%, I think it's extremely important that, that we find time for health and rest and rejuvenation. And actually, if you don't, you're going to show up at work worse. And I have you know personal experiences with that, but I protect my health as my number one priority. I'm up, I go to the gym, I have my meals, I protect my health more than more than anything because I know I can't operate, I can't coach others to be phenomenal managers and phenomenal people if I'm tired and exhausted. And perhaps one of the issues that sometimes we work with managers on is, man, you're not taking care of yourself and that's showing up in how you're managing mm. people because you're short, you're, you're, you're not patient, you're not taking the time to coach because you feel stretched for time and you've created an unhealthy environment where now your team feels it. Right. Yeah, there's there's so much that happens at work that, you know, we're supposed to be there at work while you're there, like 100% on, you're focused, you're doing these things. And, you know, as I'm growing up now from being the, like the young person and in, in becoming a more senior member, like, you know, your your wife left you um mm. like divorces mm-hmm. uh you know abusive partners yes. uh mental health issues like all these different things that people put aside to come into work uh-huh. and you know i like to think of it now it's like okay why did i get that rude email maybe and yeah. i, I kind of think to myself mm, what are they going through what are, what are those things that are affecting them that it's now projecting on me, right? Like maybe, maybe they're just an asshole, maybe, but like, is there something more and how am I going to base my reaction to what they could be going through? Um, it's a, it's a huge kind of revelation, I guess. Like it's one of the biggest things I've learned in the, in the, in the workplace 
you know, the shit that people have to go through, mm-hmm. but show up. But show up, yeah. And, you know, try to put a smile on, try to do all those things. It's it's incredible. Going back to, because you just turned my world upside down on, on something that you said. <laughs> so I yeah. was always taught to, like, by the dot, you know, like, point, step one, do this. Step two, do this. That was the way I was always taught, so that's the way I've, I've done it as a professional. Yeah. Because I was told it's covering my own ass. Mm-hmm. Um, I've given you everything you need, so that way, if you screw up, not my fault. Yeah. That might not be the correct way of doing things, is what you're saying yeah. in a way. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, this is this is a re- recent study that I that I read. I wish I could cite it properly for you right now because it's I'm remembering the story. I'm not remembering the study specifically. The, the story very quickly. They get two groups of students. They get one group of students four days to study material. And they get this other group of students one day to study the material. At the end of the four days, they test this group of students. Okay? At the end of four days, the group of four, four days to study, this test them at the end. The second group, where they only got one day, they test them after that one day. But then they test them a subs- another two times. So they get tested three times every single day after. So the study is over four days for both groups. But one group is tested three times. The other group is tested one time. This group A, four days to study. Group B, one day to study. Group B scores 10 times higher. Hmm. What? They didn't have time to study. But they were tested on the material. We learn by testing. We learn by play. As the way a child learns to try something and that doesn't work, I try it again, that doesn't work, and I keep trying. We learn by being tested and then retested and then retested and obviously getting the answers back when you get tested or oh, that was wrong, mm-hmm. learning that we were wrong. When I give someone a perfectly done sheet of exactly what to do and how to do it they're not learning they're following a process and perhaps that isn't working now at times we have to train people so i'm not saying that don't ever give a list Mm -hmm. i'm saying where can you afford a mistake because sometimes it doesn't have to be perfect just yet sometimes the learning process of your new staff is more important in the long run than them getting it perfect the first time so let them make the mistake. Be like, hey, try and figure this out. And then coach them on the result versus giving them the answer at the first place. Then we become coaches. See, that's the coach approach that we talk about with, with, with managers is that you, you can't take the basketball out of the kid's hand and shoot it for them. You also can't tuck in their elbow for them and hold the ball for them and then get them to throw it. You have to teach, take a step back, and let them shoot 15, 20 balls. And then coach them. And then when the game comes, you can't, you're can't. you not on the court. You're literally on the side. And you have to coach. And I think if we shift our lens as managers from I'm here to manage and make sure you do everything right to I'm here to coach you so that you can do my job. Because the day you can do my job, I can work on something else. I'm here to teach you to become better than me. And if we have managers that think that way with that level of emotional intelligence, then we see huge levels of growth in our staff. Do you not think... I mean, I don't... I agree with you 100% because that's the way I look at it. But when ego gets in the way, I was listening to a, a great podcast uh, with, a, with a monk. We'll talk about ego and how that ego gets in the way that if I'm training you to be better than me, well, you can then take my job. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people. So I, I like 
love the emotional intelligence no, thing, I, I, but like that's a hard one to so, get through so, people. So so how so how do we how do we get past ego? Well, we get past ego with a level of emotional intelligence. So what mm -hmm. is emotional intelligence? There's five areas that 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 Daniel Goleman in his phenomenal research identifies emotional intelligence, and and he shows that he's does a study of top level leaders and says looks at uh, technical skills, looks at IQ, cognitive abilities, and then looks at EQ and tries to weigh them to see what their importance are in the relationship to the three of them for leaders. Mm -hmm. And what they realize is that as you move up higher and higher levels in leadership, the importance of emotional intelligence doubles, triples, and grows even more. For an average, they saw emotional intelligence was two times as important as technical skills and cognitive skills. And then technical skills as you rose in level leadership dropped even more and more. And it was cognitive and emotional intelligence. So we actually very much know. It's very much research and we know that, it, that it's important. So what is it? He breaks it down into five areas. One talks about self-awareness. So are you aware of your ego? Are you aware of your insecurities? Are you aware of how you show up every day? Are you aware of your personality, your tendencies, your behaviors? We all like to think we're extremely unique. But I'm trained in a lot of personality dynamics and, 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 and mm -hmm. testing. And you can you can pick up on people's patterns very quickly. You're like, oh, you have a type. And 85% of our behaviors are just a type of a biochemical reaction to a stimuli that we have, right? So there's a certain, we, we, we fall into these groups. So are you self-aware of how you tend to react? Then do you have self-regulation? Which is your ability to, oh, I usually react this way because I have a fear that stems from a scarcity mentality that someone might take my job and then being aware of that and then regulating yourself to do it differently. Okay, even though I have this fear, I'm still going to coach this person. That's the self-regulation, mm. being aware of it and then changing. Then we get into empathy, right? Being able to actually empathetically feel how others feel and connecting with them. Then we get into intrinsic motivation. Right, that's the the fourth one, and the fifth one is social ability, which is the one that everyone always picks up on for leaders. Oh, they're sociable. Everyone likes them. They're great leaders, right? That's the obvious one. That's the extroverted mm -hmm. one. The social ability. Can you can you get people around you? Can people like you? But the real crux of it really hangs on to self self awareness and self regulation. So when we're talking about the ego, we're talking about managers. We we always take them through a personality test assessment. It's always the funnest part for me because. <laughs> because their eyes go up, they're like, oh my God, that's me. Yeah. Oh my God, that happened to me. Yeah. I had that exact problem. I had to take one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and then it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this existential moment of like, did you realize a report just predicted your actions? Okay, so can you believe me now that we follow patterns? And can you believe me that we can rewrite patterns if you can recognize them? Because that's what we're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. That's really what we're trying to help you grow as a manager because you want to be able to get beyond that. And so I, I hear you that ego is, 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 a, is a big part of it. I think ego comes from scarcity. If we create a scarce environment where we feel like I might lose out if someone else gains, then we start losing. We need to create companies and cultures where if my team gains, I gain, where it's win-win where growth is rewarded overall. And that's why I work with the CEOs around culture, beyond just a team environment, a cultural environment. How are we praising teams as a whole? Instead of looking at individual bonuses, can we look at team bonuses? Can we look at team objectives, right? In no other, no other part um, do we reward, like in, in, imagine, in, imagine in sport, I always say imagine in sport, imagine you got paid in hockey for the amount of goals you scored. Yeah, everyone would be trying to score. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't work. It doesn't, right? <laughs> the compensation structure is wrong. Yeah. You wouldn't have a goalie, 
Yeah, the goalie would want to go score. Yeah. You'd only get paid if he scored. We don't reward. We reward them as a team. But yet, we set up salespeople. We set up market. We set them up on their own different compensation. Where you know, which is why stock options work great for startups, right? Because if the whole startup does well, then it grows. That's a that's a team. Right. That's a team right. goal, right? That's a that's a current one that we use. And but there are other team goals. There are other team benefits that we look at, right? Instead of looking at compensating individuals, how do we compensate teams? And that's where we shift to try and get beyond the ego. Also, so there's a design element and how we design compensation and how we design teams that can help get past the ego. But there's also a training element around self-awareness and self-regulation that can also try and get past the ego. I love this whole conversation because this, while we're talking about business, as you're saying things, I'm like, man, like society could just like as a whole, like, you know, as, as, a, <laughs> as, a, as a country, as in like a, a whole world that like we could take these elements and just implement them. Yeah. Because as soon as you said scarcity and that when you take a, look at things that were when we're talking about like uh like race issues and stuff that whole scarcity that mm. if you don't like if you succeed that takes away something uh, from me yes and that's like really that's the whole mentality i think of you know i don't i don't like generalizing mm -hmm. but when you think of you know the republican or conservative mentality yeah. that it's very individually focused mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that i just want to do me take care of me and my family and like everyone else kind of does their thing yeah like that's like a that that mindset that you're trying to implement, you know, yeah. depending on who the person is and how they experience the world, that could be extremely difficult to try to to break down mm -hmm. and to mm -hmm. to mold them into something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 no, that's a, that's fair. That's fair that I think there are different challenges. Some managers are that I've worked with are more challenging than others. Yeah. Some teams are more challenging than others in in how in how they work, and that's where we say there's always elements of 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 trying to introduce mindset shifts where we are uh, trying to get a perspective shift. Sometimes it's a skill based shift. And then sometimes we need to design and the way we've designed our businesses are different. When you think about businesses, really they're fictional things. They're, there's no, there's no physical business. You can't touch it and grab it. It's a collection of people that are working towards a goal. Right. And how do we get this collection of people working towards a goal to work together more effectively? Mm -hmm. That's that's the number one question. And um, uh, Peter Skillman did a great study on this one, too. And he did it with uh, students, University of California and Stanford students um, to try and see, OK, what what makes some of these teams you know work better than others? And he set up a little game, set up a little exercise. You got like 20, you got 20 sticks of spaghetti noodles. You got a yard of string, a yard of tape and you got a big fat marshmallow. And the only rule is that you had to put the marsh. You had to create a tower, tallest tower. Which team would create the tallest tower? And he would put them in groups of four. And uh, the only rule was that the marshmallow had to be on top. At the same time that he set up these university students, he got a whole bunch of kindergartner students to do the exact same project. Tallest tower, you get the same exact material, same amount of time. You watch the university students, and there are these like just phenomenally strategic business students, right? They're strategizing, they're reviewing the result, like what spaghetti, how do we use it? They're debating ideas and you got this whole thing and you're like, wow, okay, that's how strategy works. And you watch these kindergartners and they're not even talking. They're just like, here, do this, do that. They're just grabbing the stuff and putting it all together and it's like hilarious watch. And if you and I were to take a bet on who would have better tower, who would have a taller tower, I mean, it seems obvious, the students at Stanford, these business mm -hmm. students. But when Skillman did the study over and over again in dozens of trials, the kindergartner students not only won every single time, there was a significant difference in their size of their towers versus any business group. 
The kindergarten uh-huh. students, on average, had 26.5 inches tall towers. Well, the business students, on average, had 10 inches tall. So, so yeah. why? <laughs> I mean, we all know cognitively and intelligently, the business students are way smarter. I have nieces and nephews. I know how smart kindergartners yeah. are. They're funny, they're cheeky, and all that stuff. It's because we fundamentally look at teams wrong. We think that teams have to do with the individual talent on the team, but instead it's not about the individual talent. It's about the interaction between the individuals. That on its own is how we should measure teams. And so when we can get people to shift their mindset, we're not really trying to shift them so much from a collectivist mentality to individualistic mentality or progressive and conservative, so on and so forth. But just to understand that it doesn't matter how amazingly talented you are as an individual, what we know over and over again is that's the interaction that you have with your team that actually determines how well your team does. Hmm. And that helps us shift them into seeing the interaction. So that's why we, when we look at that interaction, we understand. So we, when you relook at that experiment, what you realize is that the business students were engaging in more status management. All right, who's calling the shots? Right, right. Who's, who's the boss? Who can I criticize? Who can't I? We've all been in that meeting. Where someone says an idea and you don't like it, but you don't know if you're allowed to say anything. You don't want to hurt this person's feelings. You don't know what to do. You're in that moment. You're playing status management. You're trying to navigate uncertainty. Mm. But the kindergartners, they're not navigating uncertainty. They don't care. They trust everyone because as, as a kid, you have trust. Like, okay, sure. You do this. You do that. They just got straight into solving the problem. So what we need to take away from teams is when there's an ego at play, we know that they're busy navigating uncertainty because they feel unsafe. They feel that their job might be taken away. They don't feel like they belong. They don't feel that the team will take care of them if things go bad. And as long as there isn't that piece of psychological safety and belonging, we're going to have managers that feel scarcity. Interesting. Huh. Man. That's why I love this stuff. Yeah, right? That's why no, I, I get super nerdy into it. I'm, 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 I'm telling you studies. I'm telling you all this stuff. We can get a little more practical with it. But I, I, I get super nerdy about it because to me it's like we all work in teams. Yeah. Why haven't we? How do we work better? That's it. How do we raise and elevate the level of teams that we're working on? And I always tell my team, I'm like, if our team isn't the best, then I'm doing something wrong. There's no point in me coaching and teaching other people if we don't. And I, I, I said, I'm lucky. I have an amazing team. I mm-hmm. have an amazing group of people that I think as a whole, we, we, we work better than I've seen many teams. Because we all under, we teach this. We understand it. It's become part of our fabric. But I'm constantly learning, too. Right. right? I'm teaching this stuff, and I'm realizing, oh, I'm making this mistake on my team. Oh, I made this mistake on my team. How do we get feedback, right? This constant, you know, constant one of struggle. How do you how do you manage those difficult conversations? How do you get feedback with them? How do you how do you discipline a staff when things aren't going? How do you discipline a staff when you still want to create comfort and belonging and trust? How do you discipline without destroying trust? There's a dilemma, yeah. right? There's a dilemma that managers have to navigate. All of this stuff, right? So, those are all super like important questions, and everything you're talking about, I think, like a. a Every employee has these thoughts that you're talking about. Like, you know, I'm going to throw an idea at you and tell me what you think of it. But So I've always been under the impression that, you know, I, I come from a sports background playing mm-hmm. competitive hockey and, you know, I enjoy it. And I listen to, I listen to, you know, professional coaches talk about uh, how to manage the group. I listen to the people in the leadership, like captains and how they, yeah. how they uh, police the, the dressing room and how they get everyone on the same page and I was like why can't business be more like a sports team where everyone kind of like you kind of police each other in a way but you you try to create that 
winning culture not not like you know like fuck you man like get off the tee like not like that discipline but like you have those like hey man like really need you to pull your weight right now okay you're not doing it you know would that be in your experience like a logical way to maybe try to shift some of your like business thoughts to operate a, a business like a sports team mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can say it's stupid if you want no but no, that's no. always been my thought so, so so i i love the idea i love the idea and i'm and i'm all for it and i'll just say there's i'm all for it but there's one challenge and and the challenge is not is not not overcomable if that, that mm-hmm. english there <laughs> the, the challenge is overcomable but this is the main challenge um when you're playing basketball what's the goal get the ball in the bucket that's simple. Oh, or win the game. Yeah, yeah, whatever. yeah put, the, put the ball in the yeah. hoop and stop the other guys. Yeah. When you're running a business, what's the goal? All right, make money. Is it make money? Is it have impact? There's, there's, right, there's, right. there's so, but, but there's so many, there's so many different rules. Right. There's so many different games being played at the same time. There's so many different goals. So what we have, we love to use sport analogies in the coaching industry because yeah. it's easy to understand. The reason it's easy to understand is because the goal, the goal is very simple. The goal of a of a team on the on there is very simple: put the ball in the hoop, stop the other person, win the game, mm-hmm. win the championship. Like it's very clear what the target is. A lot of times, if you ask businesses, "Okay, what's your target? What's your priorities?" Uh, yeah, well, we're trying to do this, and we're trying to do that, and we're trying to do this, and we have split goals, split split priorities, and it's it's not very clear. There's not one clear goal. So that's you know usually one of the the crux of the problem of that mm-hmm. analogy. But what works really well. In, in terms of that analogy, is as we mentioned, having team team goals, team objectives, but also what we realize about sports teams that are phenomenal is that peer-to-peer accountability, right? Is that at the end of the day, the coaches always say this, I can't do it for you, right? And as a manager, as a CEO, eventually you realize that. I can't do it for you. Yes, I'm your CEO. Yes, I'm your leader. But I need you as a team to perform and so with us the peer-to-peer accountability is a beautiful part of teams that i think we can start implementing more around our teams and around our businesses right, right. instead of having one person bark and be like why don't you do this did you do that did you do this if we're all holding each other accountable and like hey i need you know and, and creating a, a culture of accountability and a culture of accountability comes from our willingness to give feedback you know brutally and and candor and be honest with each other, right? So we always talk about harnessing the power of conflict. Because conflict is a journey to truth, right? You put things under pressure, you put coal under pressure, you get diamonds. You put a you know, you, you can you can use pressure and conflict to get really healthy discussions. What happens when you put extremely talented people in a room, extremely smart, talented, bright people in a room, they're gonna disagree on an idea. Fundamentally, because they're so smart, they have so many different ideas. We're not all gonna agree. But here's what happens. Is that you get in these rooms, people disagree with the idea, and it happens in two ways. One, either it's an extremely unhealthy conflict that happens at the boardroom table where people are feel unsafe, people are fighting, people are arguing, people's feelings are hurt. Or two, it becomes office politics. Nobody really disagrees at the boardroom table. And then they go back to their offices and the desk and they whisper. And they say, oh, oh so-and-so did this. Oh, I can't believe I have to do this project. Oh, I can't believe that. And then what people end up with, we call them T-Rex arms where their arms are stuck at their head. <laughs> and they're like, oh, let me help you. Oh, oh no, that's happening. Oh, that's too bad. Mm. And they're not really engaged. See, if we can create healthy, productive conflict, we get huge amounts of buy-in. 
because I don't believe majority of people on our teams are unreasonable. They're actually extremely reasonable. And I don't believe that they need to get their way every single time either. But they need to be heard. And if they're not given a chance to be heard and conflict and debate, then we don't actually get to the buy-in. And so what happens at these boardroom tables is that we haven't had the discussion on the culture of conflict. How do you conflict productively? Mm-hmm. How should we conflict? How do I conflict where there's honesty and truth? And the underlying part of that, when people tell me, if I had, I, I, we're having a lot of conflict on our team, how do I manage conflict? I say, well, if you're having a lot of conflict on your team, your problem isn't conflict. Your problem is psychological safety. Your problem is belonging. Your problem is trust. Think about who you conflict with the most. Your brother, sister, your partner, yeah. the people who you love the family, most. Yeah. Family. You conflict Best with the friends. most. Why? Yeah. Because you trust that it's okay. You're like, oh, I know I can go to bat. Yeah. I can fight you on this. And I know yeah, you're not leaving absolutely. me because you're my brother, you're my sister, whatever it is. I love you. I know you're not going to leave me. And I'm going to go to bat for this because I care about this. But if we don't create that environment of trust, then we don't get conflict. We get office politics. We, we get office politics. We don't get accountability. Because now we're not going to hold each other accountable to things we never actually agreed to. How do you go about initiating that though? Like, cause now, now you're just, you're resonating stuff with me. I'm like, <laughs> mm, okay, yeah, we need to know that. Like of all the things that you can do in a workplace, conflict has to be the number one thing because again, just like you were saying that trust, mm-hmm. right? And I think a lot of the times, you know, you don't want to get in trouble with HR and you never know what's going to get, what, what, what's going to push the button or make people feel unsafe or feel you know like that's a very difficult thing to to one initiate Mm -hmm. i'm sure once it's still hard once you get it up and running but to initiate that process yes how do you go about that because that like you know i think everyone can resonate with something like where you get that office a lot of people see work as like high school and everyone is just Uh like talking behind each other's back and Mm -hmm. like oh fucking joe brand's wearing that sweater (laughs) again you know like yeah it's, it's hard and everyone's afraid to do it. Like, how do you go and, and make it happen? So, so we do it in two ways. When we come into a team and, and we want to help them with it, we do two things right away. One, we do, we do a personality assessment, but not in a way where I think most teams have done it, where like they do it on their own. They're like, oh, this is cool, right? And they kind of mm-hmm. just their own results. No, no, we do a full in-depth personality assessment where we all share with each other. Because the first thing that we realize is that based on certain personalities, the way we approach and deal with conflict is different, right? You've got certain dominant direct personalities that are like, I want to talk this out right here, right now, let's go. And you have some personalities that are extreme conflict avoidance. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, I don't want to talk about it. It's okay. I don't care. Do whatever you need to. Okay. So one, understanding our personality types and how we deal with conflict is a fundamental piece in doing this. So we show how people are different and it's always a fun training session because they're like oh my god yeah you do that oh you do that and they're starting to see how their 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 colleagues are fitting into these patterns and suddenly they don't blame them anymore and they say oh this Hmm. is a part of your personality you're not you're not choosing right now to avoid conflict this is just kind of how you are but now that maybe you're aware of it we can work to the next step so when we include self-awareness right that's a self-awareness piece can we get to self-regulation so now that you're aware of how you naturally deal with conflict, how do we find the balance point? Because the person who wants to deal with conflict right away needs to also chill and find a proper way of dealing with it. And the person who wants to avoid conflict completely needs to find a way to engage with it. So we do our personality deep level assessments so that they understand. We do it together collectively and, and teach on it so that they do that. And then we do some role playing games and that's always fun. Mm-hmm. And then we do the next step. 
the thing with culture, as thing with conflict, sorry, is that it has unwritten rules, just like culture, right? Culture has unwritten rules where you don't you don't know what to actually you you grow up in the you grow up in Canada, so you know the Canadian culture and the customs, but they're not mm-hmm. written. No one says yeah. you know when you meet someone, shake their hand. That's not a rule anywhere, mm-hmm. but that's that's the culture here, right? I'm, I come from Kuwait. I'm go, you shake when you when you meet someone, you shake their hand, you kiss three times on the cheeks. If I started, if I came to meet you today and went in for a kiss, you know, you probably like okay, different culture. You you you'd be in a moment of assessment of like what's going on. Yeah, but there's yeah. a culture difference anyway. So basically, culture is unwritten rules. The thing with culture is that one, it's unwritten rules, so people don't know it. So when people have different cultures and different personalities, they don't know how to react to it because it's it's different rules. On top of that, conflict is this unspoken part of culture, right? Different cultures deal with conflict differently, and we never openly talk about how to properly conflict. There's no rules. Yeah, so There's true. No, yeah. So we do a team. We collectively create a team rule, like a, a team philosophy on that. We call them the seven rules of conflict. And as a team, we have we use this design uh, thinking methodology to brainstorm what are going to be the seven rules of conflict for our team. And we literally outline them. And we essentially write the rules that nobody talks about. So now you can cite one of the rules. And you say, okay. And you have it up in the boardroom table and in, 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 the, in the meeting room. And you say, okay, so I, I don't agree here. And like, I, I just want to, like, I, it's extremely important for me to, to, to speak my voice because we, we talked about this as part of the rules. And when we can refer to the rules and say, hey, we've talked about this. Rule number three was like, bring data and evidence to your argument or you know, personal experiences or rule number five is don't take it personally because it's really not about you. It's about the idea. So then when it's happening, right, you can say, Hey man, I think you're taking it a bit personally right now. And, and you know, we talked about like the importance of that. Help me understand why you're taking it personally. Cause I don't mean it personally. Right. It gives us, it gives us language to use. And we've seen teams transform based on just helping them understand their personality types and creating a language around conflict that now I can use and I can actually engage in. And that starts to just shift the things. Mm. Those are the two basic steps. There's obviously more in depth. Of course. Those are the first two that we get into. When we're talking about, you know, all these steps we've been talking about to, to creating, you know, good leaders and, and managers and, and a healthy workplace, where does the onus fall? Does it fall more on the managers to put forth the healthy workplace or does it fall more on the workers as the employees to create that healthy workspace? Yeah. You know, Jim Collins wrote a great book, Good to Great. A lot of people have known it. It's a a staple in organizational psychology and organizations. And Jim Collins in his book says, you know, he said, I really didn't want to include a chapter on leadership because all these books on leadership talk about the importance of leadership. He said, no, I wanted, I wanted my entire book to be fundamental research on what, how companies made decisions and how their decision making, their strategy and their so on and so forth had led them to become great. And he says, however, my entire research team at one point said it can't happen. There's far too many evidence to show that shows the significant impact of leaders on companies. And he went on to define level five leadership and this idea of a very humble leader with great humility, but great foresight in making this very disciplined foresight in making the long-term decisions. And he talked about this unique element. Aside from defining what level five leadership to, you know, is, to me, what I took away from that and what I've seen personally, so that's the one, the research, too, what I've seen personally is that fundamentally 
a lot of things come down to the leader. Fundamentally, so much comes down to the leadership and not just the management, not just the managers, sorry, but the top level executives. The managers could be trying to create a healthy workplace, but if our top level executives and our founders and our CEO aren't bought into the same idea, it's extremely difficult. Now, that is the first onus. The second thing is, I would say is, I very much teach the concept that everybody, everyone can be a leader. And I believe it. I, mm. I believe it thoroughly and truly. It's going to be my, one of my next questions. And, and that's <laughs> it. Because, because what is leadership fundamentally? It's initiative for change. It's someone who takes initiative, who stands out, who leads, to change something. That's it. That's it. That's, mm. that's literally it. So, oh, a person who's not a manager can identify like, yeah, I really don't like how our washrooms never have proper enough toilet paper. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? So that's what we teach, especially with these small teams where are 15 people. I say, you know, if you don't like something, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to change it? Because you can change it. Ask for a little budget line and just start ordering more toilet paper. Cool, talk to the office manager. Uh, you know, or that, I mean, that's such a simple example, but you don't like that. You don't have... Um, you want a coffee machine in the in the office and you don't like this coffee machine. These are simple little things mm -hmm. uh, that are like usually where people start off, you know, where like when workers are like, well, I want to make a better workplace environment. They start with the uh, very tactical material things because it's like easy to. Right. Getting fruit. For yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. but then it's it's no, you, you, you can be a leader and your leadership comes from your willingness to stand up, your willingness to speak out and your willingness to do that. Now, we have to create a, a culture of leadership. So this is where we get to the high level of the CEOs. We talk about a culture of leadership. This is our final step in our building unicorn teams. We call them unicorn teams. It's creating a culture of leadership. Because the management needs to create an environment where the workers feel comfortable to take initiative and to create a change and to empower them to do that. Because if the first worker, first person tries to take initiative, tries to make a change, but then they're slapped on the wrist for it, the other people are watching. And they're like, whoa, don't do that. That's part of our culture here. We don't do that. And whether they think of that consciously or subconsciously, it's a cue and it's a reminder that if you stand out and you try to take initiative and it doesn't fall in priorities with what the top level leadership wants, you're not going to be you're, you're not going to be happy about it. Mm -hmm. So that's extremely important. So to answer your question, it's most important for managers. High level CEOs have to be bought into it. And then at the end of the day, everyone can be a leader. But we have to create a culture of it. Right. Who inspires you? Do you have people that like you look towards for for whether it's inspiration on it, on this subject or in your own life? Like you know, you're obviously a very confident, inspiring fellow, spreading kind of wisdom and, and knowledge to people and helping empower them. Like, where do you get your your sense of empowerment? That's a good question. Um, you know, that's 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 interesting. I, I've gone through I've gone through a few different. Uh, I guess I have personal mentors and personal role models. Okay. I'm going to start off there and then kind of talk more, maybe, uh, you know, influencer, like, you know, people that I like to follow over mm -hmm. their stuff and learn from them. Um, from a per very personal level, I always refer to a gentleman the name Tom Patrick. And uh, Tom Patrick was the camp director at Camp Smitty when I was there as a kid and then a staff. And he is this, he is a, he, he, he works for the police force and the police force had lent him out essentially to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Ottawa to run youth programming and so on and so forth. Phenomenal leader. Tom, at the beginning of every session, this is, a, a stay, this is a, like a sleepaway camp, right? We would go to camp mm -hmm. and we, we had a cabin of like eight kids, 10 or eight, uh, like eight to 10 kids. And there'd be like 120 kids a session. 
And on the first day, we would do all these little rotations. You go to the nurse's cabin, you go to the waterfront. They do their they do their swim test to make sure we know what kids can swim, what kids can't. We go to the you know get their allergies. Like we do all this stuff. And one of the stops that we do on the first day of camp is we do a stop with Tom Tom Patrick, the director of the camp. Now there's a program director who runs the majority of the stuff. Tom Tom is the director of the whole thing, so he's in and out of camp. He's not there all the time, but he's there on the first day, and he sits down with every single kid, and he plays this little game of dynamite, this game, of this rock game that they created at camp, and so on and so forth. But when the kid sits down, Tom says their name. He knows every single kid's name, every single session. It's 120 kids a session. I barely remember the eight kids that I have yeah. on that first day. But he knows every single kid's name. He doesn't actually have a photographic memory. There's no special thing about his memory. He just says, I, I take the time. I make sure I go and I go through the list of names and we have pictures of the kids and I try to remember them. And he plays this game with kids. He always says, well, sometimes I get two or three wrong a session. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to say he's not perfect. And to me, what was so beautiful about that was it showed how important leadership is from the small actions. Not just always the big strategic vision setting where we're going as a company, but the small little belonging cue that tells the kid, hey, even the top guy here knows your name. Mm. Even the top guy here is taking the time to meet you, know your name, and play a little game with you. And he doesn't he not only just know their name, he knows what siblings they have. He says, oh, Sam, you have your sister and your brother here, right? And it's this beautiful thing. Now, aside from that one little anecdote about Tom, Tom was this amazing leader that we learned so much from, and, and he, he led from a very high level and from the background, which I really loved. He was there when he needed to be very much, you know, running the camp and making the jokes and getting everyone excited. But we would always joke that you'd always see Tom in the bushes watching what's happening, you know, just yeah. from afar. And he would give enough space for the rest of his senior staff to run the show. And he'd give them so much space because he would watch, let them do their thing, and then he would coach. And he would always there. And then he would show up for the things that he was needed. And I think that, to me, from a leadership perspective, I really learned a lot watching that, understanding the importance of belonging, understanding the importance of giving people, empowering your staff to actually take take time, understanding the importance of conflict, where he would allow us during staff meetings to debate and say, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And he would hold you accountable. And, and, and he really created a culture of leadership, which is that last piece that we, that we get to. Yeah, I, t I was told... Uh like a good leader, you, if like uh, this was a corporate life, but remembers your name and like a piece of information about you. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, like you were saying, like whether like every time you see them, it's kind of like, oh, how's your wife doing? Oh, how's your dog? Or yeah. how, you know, yeah. just to show that yeah. you get them on that human level. Which is what, they're, what we're looking for. We get back to that belonging piece, that yeah. interaction piece. We interact with people who we feel more comfortable with. That's just it. We want to be with people who we feel trust with. And that's what that does, right? It starts, and it starts at that superficial level of like remember their name, but it goes so much more if you use it at an empathetic level. Not only am I going to remember their name, I want to know who they are, right? And mm -hmm. I think far too often from a work environment, we don't know about our colleagues' lives. Yeah, we don't, you know, like we we don't know about certain things that that create empathy and bonds as human beings, as social animals, like what that what that looks like. And I think that's a big piece. From a theoretical, from a more like, you know, writers and, and writers that I follow and people that I really like, uh, uh, you know, there's a local Canadian speaker named Drew Dudley who talks about everyday leadership. And and uh, I love his stuff. And, you know, he, he has a great TED Talk called The Lollipop Moment. And uh, um, 
you know, it very much encapsulates this idea of everyday leadership, which is leadership isn't the big moments that we see on TV, isn't the big moments of Martin Luther King Jr., or mm. Nelson Mandela, or Gandhi's, you know, hunger strike. No, they're the little moments that built up to that. Everyday leadership. It's the, leadership, the leader, how we show up every single day, how we create those interactions with names, how we create a safe space, how we create a culture for people to stand up and speak out, how we create that. It's all those little things that create phenomenal leaders. It's those small, consistent actions over a period of time that create leadership. And, and I think that, to me, is a big piece of it. And then, obviously, I, I, I love Jim Collins' work. I follow it very closely. I love Patrick Leoconi's work, who has some great stuff on the five dysfunctions of a team and ideal team mm. players. Um, you know, uh, Simon Sinek's work is, is phenomenal. Yeah, he's the one who goes viral a lot. Yeah, when... he goes viral because, you know, he's really good at playing the emotional part yeah. of leadership. He's very much, take leadership from an emotional perspective, and then he, he, he kind of pushes it through, which I think is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at leadership from a management perspective to an organizational psychology perspective daniel daniel Co coleman coil coil daniel coil uh who wrote the culture code and the talent code to me are, are is a phenomenal thought leader also in this space too mm. so uh, you know there's a few different that i look to but i always say from a personal perspective tom patrick was one of those that right. kind of stood out to me while we're talking about all this you know i really think it resonates with a lot of people and you know one time or another you're running into one of these issues while you're at work this is just this every day at work <laughs> yeah. we're talking about some of these people going viral right the ted talks like when it comes to leadership yeah they always do super well we yeah. uh speakers books like everyone kind of wants a piece of that leadership pie and yes. then like they they watch it they or whatever read it and then they walk away and they're like ah i'm inspired <laughs> you know i'm gonna be better but yet a lot of things never change yeah why do you think that is? Why do we put, you know, to some respect, we put leadership, everyone wants, a lot of people want to be a leader, right? We put it on this pedestal and we're like, I'm going to be a great leader. But yet, like, when we look at society as a whole, like, not a lot of this, people do it, absolutely, there's great leaders, but not a lot of people either stick to it or keep it going in their daily life. Like, yeah. why do you think that we just, we, we have the research, we have the people who are T trying to tell us this yeah. and teach us yeah. yet it doesn't stick yeah. why do you think that is There's, I, I love this question because there's genuinely one fundamental answer and it's that we cannot teach leadership from the stage I do it I'm a speaker you can book me you read my book you can watch my videos you can watch my YouTube videos check them out oh, you have a book I don't have a book okay. yet I'm working on that Ooh, okay. <laughs> later on later on but you can you can uh, there's like, I, you know watch our YouTube videos watch all that stuff you can you can learn all the information yeah. you can listen to this podcast and feel inspired but we know fundamentally through all the research you cannot teach leadership from a book or from the stage kind of ironic eh <laughs> yeah. you can't teach swimming from the stage either right right you can't it's a you are rewriting patterns of behavior that's what we're trying to do with leadership. When we're trying to teach you leadership, I am trying to rewrite your impulsive instinct to do your past behavior. You're used to reacting like this when this happens. And I want to rewrite that. That's like, I always tell people, like, and anyone who's listening to this, do this right now. Put your hands together and, 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 and then close them and see what thumb you put on top. Right? So I always say, if you put your left thumb on top, then it means you're a beautiful person. If you, ha, put, yes. if you put your right thumb on top, it means you're a genius. Oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither no. neither is true, but do that, and now flip them. Yeah, How feels... awkward does that feel? Yeah. It feels really weird. If we just move our thumbs, it feels weird, and our body's literally saying, well, what are you doing? 
Wait, and then you try and like move your hand to do it, and you're like, wait, that feels weird. Yeah. And then if you cross your arms, you realize you cross one way. Now cross them the other way. Most people don't even know what that means, and oh, it, yeah. it, it feels weird. Yeah. If change at a fundamental level where we're just changing our thumbs feels weird, what does change feel like when we're trying to emotionally rewrite the way we respond to an emotional stimuli? To when someone gets angry at you, how do you self-regulate? To when someone doesn't do what you asked, how do you self-regulate? When you're used to responses. So we know that the only fundamental way to genuinely teach leadership is through coaching and through very hands-on experiential training, right? Coaching is one-on-one. -on -one. Coaching is like, hey, you did this. How should we have reacted? Self-reflection. We reflect on it and we work it again. And we reflect on it and we work it again. Training is I'm going to put you in those situations and I'm going to see how you react and then I'm going to train you on it. And we're going to put you in more situations and really experiential stuff. I'm going to give you the theory and I'm going to put you right into it. Right. That's why we say leadership is key for people who are mature. That's why it's easier for a 50-year-old to lead because mm. they've been through it all. So they've learned through the mistakes because maturity is actually a big part of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. But how do we speed up that process or how do we teach that process? The reality is we need very hands-on training. Right. That's what I tell people. I love coming in to give a keynote. Please keep booking me. That's great. But after the keynote, if you want to see fundamental change in your organization, let's work deeply with your team. Let's put them through training sessions. Let's put them through coaching sessions. Because if you start to pick on one skill, and that's what I would, I would, tell, I would tell anyone, like if you want to do this, this is how you would do this on your own. There's, I think, only one fundamental way to genuinely do it on your own is right now identify one piece of your leadership that you want to improve which is how you give, let's say, how you give feedback to staff. That's it. And for the next weeks, you're going to record every time you give feedback and how you did it better. And every week, you're going to analyze yourself. I give feedback really well. Oh, I avoided giving feedback this week because I was nervous. Or, oh, actually, my feedback wasn't given very well. And then how was it given well and how was it not giving well? And it's just that process of self-reflection because what you're doing is re you're rewiring the neuron neural connections in your brain because mm -hmm. they have a certain pattern that they're firing off in. Right, they're firing off in this one pattern, and you're trying to say, nah, fire off in this pattern instead, right? Which is don't react or don't give feedback so bluntly and harshly. Can you be a little more kind, but yet still brutally honest? Can you mm -hmm. still be right? Where is that? And so that's 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 fundamentally why um, why we struggle with it. And so that's why I I I teach this, but I have my own coaches. Yeah, I it, because I know for me to grow is that I still need another eye on me to say, Fahad. You didn't handle the situation well. So you should have handled this situation this way. Or you could have grown your leadership capacity in this. Right? And so I coach, I, my entire team also gets one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with me. Every month we go through a one-on-one -on -one coaching session. Hey, you're in leadership capacity on this area. We're working on your, we're working on your self-awareness right now. Then we're going to work on your motivators. Then we're going to work on your values. Then we're going to work on um, your ability to give you know, feedback. Then we're going to work on your understanding of other personalities and adapting and so on and so forth. And we have mm -hmm. a whole curriculum that we use. And I use it on my own staff because we need them to develop too, not just, oh, I work for Fahad, so I'm going to learn it. Well, right, no, because right. you have to work on it, right? Yeah. And my, the next part of that question was, you know, we go through the training, everything's great, we're feeling good, uh, <laughs> society, or, uh, the workplace is great. Things, then things stop going so swimmingly in terms of, you know, maybe you're not making budget. Maybe, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to hit our targets. And, you know, <laughs> once things kind of start falling apart, like how yeah. do you keep these learning, like these teachings, and, you know, even if you've been doing really well at it, to do it when it's going well is one thing, but to do this all when like the pressure is on yes. is a whole other thing. Yes. Yeah. To re 
to to self regulate. So or is it what Mike Tyson? We all have a plan till we get punched in the face, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to self regulate once you get punched in the face is a much different yeah. strength of self regulation than to self regulate when it's sunny and beautiful outside. Truly, the only way that I know through our research is like when you are in that stressful situation and things are going poorly, you just have to see it as an opportunity to, to learn that skill under stress. Hmm. So unless you're aware enough to be like, okay, this is not going well, but like how I react, this is part of my learning right here, right? It's just like a sport. When you're playing basketball and you're facing a team that is plummeting you <laughs> and you're getting destroyed, this is a moment to learn how to react to that team, how to play defense on that team. So unless we can shift our perspective of like very stressful, high difficult moments are a huge learning opportunity for this skill, it is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the mindset shift that we work on because it does happen. And I've worked with teams like that. I worked with teams where I thought I taught them everything. We went through the training, went through the coaching, and then a few months in, huge budget cuts, and then a few months more. Uh, I'm getting complaints from the staff who say, you know, I know you've taught us all this stuff, but it feels like we've just gone back eight months. It's the same stuff all over again. Okay. Well, let's get back on the bike. Uh, you know, it, it is this constant learning process. And, yeah. that's, I, I, mm. it, and that's, you know, that's the one thing that I always say is most difficult when, when, when selling our services or when telling people we'll work with you. There isn't, you know, isn't, I'm not going to build you a marketing funnel where you're going to get leads and then you're, you know, you're going to make more money. There's no like very clear one, two, three, and then you're going to get this result. I'm here to teach, which mm-hmm. is educate and train. And that just takes time. And that's why we've we've switched our model over the last couple of years. We used to work with a lot of teams on these very intensive two-day leadership training sessions. And we still do them. But what we like to do now is we like to spread that out over six months. And we'll work with you half day, half day, half day intensive, half day, half day, half day, spread over six months. Because that allows for a learning process to, oh, how did last month go? What did we reflect on? Okay, what are we learning this month? And kind of revisiting the material over a period of time, which allows them to learn a lot more deeply. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about you. So you you're, you go in and teaching all these things, and we just went through the, the whole process and everything. But when it comes back down to you, I know you mentioned you have your, your leaders and your mentors, and I know you mentioned you go to the gym. How do you keep... Uh, like a healthy lifestyle. What, like what types of things do you do to make sure like you're running optimally? Yeah. You know, like do you, do you meditation, yoga? Like cause you seem very grounded when when you're speaking. Thank you know, you. we we just met before here, and you know, like I said, you were confident and, and empowering young chap. Um, <laughs> but you know, like I, I'm curious, you know, like to for you to be performing on yeah. on these cylinders and and going in with a great headspace to these yes. places and facing these challenges. Like, how do you keep a level head? Yeah, I you know I always say um. Motivation is the most unreliable thing we've ever been wired with as humans. <laughs> yeah, we have. Had... It's extremely unreliable. You know, moment it hits and you're like, woo! And then another moment you're like, I don't feel motivated. Yeah. And so I think what we need to do is we need to design a life that takes that takes motivation out of the equation. And that when motivation hits, we just are happy about it when it's not it's not there. And so I've designed I've designed my days and my weeks very systematically very regimentally so one i go in the mornings i i, I go to the gym every morning good so for you wake up it's a five. hard thing to do too <laughs> yeah wake up at five go to the gym at six i miss the gym sometimes 
but I'm also not hard on myself. If I, if I miss, I tell myself, all right, get back on the horse. It's not about having a perfect record. It's about having progress, right? So I go to, I wake up at 5, I go to the gym at 6. And I go to the office at about 8.30. After the gym, I always spend about 15, 20 minutes in the sauna. I use the sauna as a bit of meditation time also. Mm-hmm. I hate it. <laughs> Sit in 15, 20 minutes in fucking heat and, <laughs> and meditate yeah. and be quiet. It, I, I do that early in the morning because because I struggle... I struggle with focus sometimes. I, you know, we grew up in this very multitasking, switch tasking right, world, yeah. really, and we, we want to jump around from thing to thing. And so in the morning, I'm like, if I can hone in on this skill, which I can teach myself to just focus quietly and do nothing for 20 minutes and just sit there in my own thoughts. I'm, I'm, for me, meditation is sitting in my own thoughts. I don't try and get rid of my thoughts. I have people have different practices. Yeah. I don't, I'm not claiming to know a right way or a wrong way. I simply want to sit in my thoughts for 20 minutes and nothing else. So I do that in the morning. That really helps. I think that really grounds me. I also I also write in a, in a like I have this high performance planner every morning, which just it's like a morning gratitude journal, but it's, it's just a little journal which says, what do I need to actually accomplish today? What are the things that are going to get in my way today? Uh, what are the things? And what I'm doing here is I'm just priming myself. Psychologically, that's what we're doing. You need to prime yourself perfectly to have a good day. Right, so prime myself. It's gonna be a good day, but I know what my disasters are gonna be. I know what my difficult points are gonna be, and I know what I need to accomplish. And so I come in the mornings very primed. Eight thirty. I've done my journal. I've done my sauna. I've done my gym. I feel good, and I feel like I can just run with it. Right now, that's phenomenal. When I'm here, I travel for half the time because <laughs> I've got clients in Toronto. I've got clients across Ontario in different areas. I work with universities, all that. So during the travel time, it makes it very difficult. So I try to still use the gym during travel to ground me or mm-hmm. at least my planner mm-hmm. right? that I kind of just write in, in journal in. The other thing is where I plan so I plan that and then all my meals are prepared for me on Sunday. So me and my partner, we helps me out and we all make our meals and literally make lunch and dinner. Like lunch and dinner and the snacks in between is wow. all ready. So I just walk out in the morning with a little lunch bag and I have it all. And that allows me to not think about food during the day. Which I love food, but like to me, it's just it's like okay, if I want to optimize my day, if I have food, then that way too, I don't make I don't make it. We make poor decisions for dinner because we're tired. And I'm like, oh, just give me pizza, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like. But on Sunday when I'm feeling good, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna eat salad and vegetables and all the healthy yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. So anyways, I I really take care of my health. Gym, we go food. Food goes really well, and then in the evening times, I always have I have a I have a really I have a really good evening routine. But and I have a really good morning routine. I always tell people your morning routine starts in the evening. Hmm. Morning routine is based on how you prime yourself in the evening. And in the evening, you just take time, time to like go back to that same journal. Okay, how did today go? How did things go? And just kind of calm my mind down because my mind races. And so you know, the gym, a little bit of meditation. I'm not crazy meditator. Some people are, you know love it. I, I think that's great for them. But my food, if I can, energy sources. That's it. Mm-hmm. If I can put amazing food in my body and I can burn it during the gym and I have a great day. And I guess the last the last piece is like genuinely, I protect my time really really well by by every every start of every week, I block out all the time that I need. So every single day is scheduled exactly for where it needs every week. Okay, I'm gonna work on this, then I'm gonna work on that, then I have this meeting, then this meeting. And the entire calendar is actually scheduled. So I know what an ideal day looks like. Some people say, well, you're over scheduled. I'm like, mm, I don't perfectly follow it. Like mm-hmm. I, the reality is things change oh, for sure. But if I have an ideal schedule for the pri- that that block time for the priorities, I always get the priorities done. 
Right. So the priorities are what the, what matter. Now, does that count your rest time and like if you're like, so, or do you? That's just more like your work. More and, work. Okay. That's more work. I mean, I do put in the gym. I do put in my. I play volleyball. I do put in that. Mm-hmm. And then and then surround yourself with good people. Mm-hmm. I am blessed blessed to have good members of my team, good family members, good friends, and I just good people and and stay away from the energy vampires of the world. There are people who suck energy away. And I just say, you know what? Time vampires, yeah. Yeah, and I just say, you you haven't dealt with your own shit yet. And that's cool. I respect that. If you're not willing to deal with your own shit, I don't want it. You know? I don't expect everyone to unpack their own insecurities and really work on their own emotional intelligence on their own. Some of us need some levels of therapy and some levels of help, but I think we all have shit. Mm -hmm. And there's far too many people that haven't dealt with it. And if I can sense the person hasn't dealt with their shit, I'm just like, maybe it's not good for me and you to... Because you're, you're, cause your shit's coming out on me. Your your stress is coming out on me. Your negative energy because you're not happy with all these other parts of your life is coming out on me. I have des- I truly believe we can design our own lives. Hmm. We can design a, a reality and a vision that we want. A happiness, a life, a relationship, a house, a work, whatever. We can design it. And if you're not actively designing but you're passively living through life, I'm not interested in, in you being part of, part of my life. And so I'm very selective about who I spend my time with. Right. And like... I can feel it with you. I can say I, I can feel it. you're designing your own life. You're here. You're creating. You have this passion, and to me, like that's cool. I'm like, yeah, Ryan's a cool guy. Like, I want to spend time with Ryan. <laughs> no, no, but that, you're you're in the process of designing a life that you want, and to me, that's what says that he under, he sees we're on the same mm-hmm. mindset. And so I just I'm not out here to educate the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to change people like everyone. So I just avoid those who who I think would take away my energy. Right. Yeah. I, that's one of the biggest things I've I've found. I don't want to put people down, but when when you start the podcast and you start to become a little bit more of a public figure, mm-hmm. that you know people are like, hey, let's go get coffee, let's you know, let's uh, do this, let's collaborate and stuff. And and at first, like when you you don't really understand it, you're like, yeah, sure. And then you start meeting people, and you're like, like okay, like I get what you're saying with that, and that's been a big kind mm-hmm. of challenge of my life in the last year. That people, mm-hmm. a lot of people want my time, mm-hmm. and that's great. That I'm super grateful and gracious that people want to come talk to me or have ideas and want to do stuff together and i try to accommodate as best i can but you start learning pretty quickly that you're like yeah i maybe this isn't right going back to that conflict resolution talk but you know what i mean it's it's definitely like you said like taking that time to design your life and and who should be in it who might not be the best fit at that particular time doesn't say mm-hmm. that it can't change mm-hmm. but that's been a big thing yeah. in my life the last little yeah. bit where i'm i've found uh some struggles with for sure yeah yeah and i say protect the fuck out of your time yeah like protect it and 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 i protect it so much so by 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 pre-planning the entire week if the entire week is pre-planned on what i need to do when and someone says hey can we go for coffee this week i say well this week's already planned yeah. Got time next week? And at least it creates a little bit of barrier. If I'm already pre-planned, then my priorities are very clear. Mm-hmm. I think our, our biggest issues, and, 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 and I'm sure you see this challenge, is you're like, yo, I, I worked this entire week, but the two priorities I need to get done didn't get done. Because he did everything else. Because mm-hmm. he did whatever it came to. And this is what a lot of managers, <laughs> I can bring you back to this, first-time managers, which is what we work with a lot, a lot of first-time or second-time managers, mm-hmm. they're just reacting to stimuli. They're reacting to their environment. They're not setting priorities and working on the priorities. They're reacting to whatever comes on their desk. Can you do this? Can you do that? Or oh, our team needs this. Or our team needs that. And unless you have a handle on protecting your time as a manager and creating structure, then you struggle with it. And I know I struggled with it for a long time too. Yeah. Right. And it's like, again, I would say 
a lot of this we just got to keep putting in practice. <laughs> yeah, it, that's what it, it sounds like. It's, there's no magical no. solution that, like you said, you just walk in, you're like, okay, you're done. See you later. Have fun. Like, you're a leader. Like, you're a leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We're just, it's it's ongoing. It's yeah. it's constant work and, and you know, uh, discipline. You mm. know, I'm finding a lot of, as you're speaking, a lot of discipline in your life yeah. and how you yeah. you build your build it around that. I think it, yeah. it comes down to all of us. And unfortunately, that's all of our biggest struggles is yeah. creating discipline and not yeah. acting on impulse. Yeah. Um, listen, man, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Uh, where can people, if they want to watch you on YouTube, on Instagram? I mean, I say Google my name, Fahad, F-A-H-D. And you can try and Google my last name, but I might, you know, you might have more difficulty spelling it. But it's A L H A T T A B. If you find that you find that name, you'll find it on me on Instagram, you'll find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on YouTube. So it's Fahad Al Hatab. Um, you can check it out. Our website is unicornlabs.ca. So check out Unicorn Labs. All our content is there too, and you can check it out. And uh, you know, shoot me a follow, send me a message if you have any questions. Would love would love to engage with um, some of your listeners, and if they have anything that I can uh, continue to provide value with. Yeah, beautiful man. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for giving me the time. Bye everybody. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.